he was known as the beloved physician. He was a man who had helped hundreds. He was also a preacher as well as a medical doctor. Many had come to him for both medical and spiritual help. His hometown was not in the Middle East, but in Kansas City. His name was Dr. Walter Wilson. He lived from 1886 to 1969, and his story is found in the book Miracles in a Doctor's Life. Dr. Wilson had a very unique way of combining the intellectual with the spiritual. He knew how to capture the attention of the most disinterested audience. In fact, he specialized in speaking to people who didn't want to talk about the Bible or anything about God. Those were the people he wanted to talk about. Well, one day he went to an audience just like that. It was a men's business club. So Dr. Wilson got up and he gave a question. Here was his question. What color are peacock eggs? What color are peacock eggs? Well, there was a rustle around the tables, and someone goes, I think they're blue. And someone else said, no, 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 they're brown. Someone else said, no, no, they're white with brown spots. Someone said, no, they're brown with white spots. And then Charlie stood up. Charlie was the know-it-all. Charlie stood up grabbed his suspenders, said they are an opaque white. I should know, for I have seen them before. I have seen four of them. And that should settle the question. And he sat down. Dr. Wilson then stood up and said, Gentlemen, peacocks do not lay eggs. Peahens do. <laughs> At that moment, he had all their attention. And he began to tell them about the Bible. The doctor we're going to talk about today is very much like Dr. Wilson. His name is Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke had a very special way of grabbing the attention of the intellectual and walking the intellectual towards the Christ of Christmas. You see, when God wanted to write a gospel to the Jewish culture, he chose a rejected Jew by the name of Matthew. When God wanted a gospel for the Roman culture, he chose a man born in a Roman colony by the name of Mark. 
When he wanted to reach the Greek culture, he chose a man of a professional background by the name of Dr. Luke. When Matthew wrote, human religion was replaced by divine love. When Mark wrote, human justice, human power was replaced by divine mercy. And today we will discover that when Luke writes, the human pursuit of perfection is replaced by divine salvation. You see, the Greeks viewed their mission in life to bring humanity to the place of perfection. They believed that they were the representatives of reason and humanity in the ancient world they looked upon themselves as having this mission of perfecting people and so the third gospel is written with the purpose of showing that the perfect man is the lord jesus christ so notice with me today that the author the audience and the announcement as it is contained in the gospel of look of Luke as we look at the gospel and the Christmas story. The author. Now Luke is probably his nickname. It's more than likely. Nicknames are the shortened name. We always take a name and we make it shorter. That's just who we are. My name is Greg. That's short for Gregory. Early in my life, I was always asked, are you a 1G or 2G Greg? You see, I'm a 1G Greg, because I'm a Gregory. If you're a 2G Greg, you're just a Greg. But if you're a 1G Greg, you're a Gregory. Now, for many years, I didn't know that my name was Gregory, because I thought Gregory was the name that I was called when I was in trouble. <laughs> and then I knew I was in real trouble when I was Gregory Wayne. But it was, it was the short name. How about your name? Are you called a shortened name? Maybe you're called Liz, short for Elizabeth. Maybe you're called Bill or Will, short for William. Maybe you're called Johnny, short for John. Well, hold it, that doesn't work. Luke's real name was probably Lucanos. Luke was a Gentile, meaning that he wasn't Jewish. He was the only Gentile to write a book of the Bible. In volume, he wrote about one quarter of the New Testament, as far as amount of words. It's believed that he was born in the town of Philippi, and he probably took his medical training in either Athens or Tarsus or Alexandria. He wrote two books, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, which we studied this summer. These books real, reveal a lot about us, about Luke to us. They tell us that he's a poet. There are more, there's more poetry in the Gospel of Luke than any of the other Gospels. In fact, he goes out of his way to record poetry. The songs of Mary, 
Mary's Magnificat is recorded in Luke. The songs of the angels are recorded in Luke. We know that he is an artist. He uses word pictures more than any of the other writers. And in fact, there is a small cathedral in Spain that supposedly has a painting that Luke did of Mary. We don't know if it's truly his, and we don't know if it's truly of Mary, but legend has it that Luke was a painter and that he painted that painting. We know he's a scholar. His Greek, his writing style shows that he was equal to Paul in his intelligence. His Greek is on the same level as Paul, probably even better. I remember when I was taking Greek, I loved it when the instructor would say, hey, Greg, we're going to study out of the book of John today. Oh, that's easy. Not so much when he would assign the book of Romans. Not so much with Hebrews. And I hated it when he would assign Luke. Let me show you why in English. Notice the complexity. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainly concerning the, the things you have been taught. <gasps> oh, my. And that word Theophilus, very unique word, God lover or God friend, only appears here. And that word eyewitness, we're going to go back to it, but that's a very unique word. It's a medical word. A medical word for eyewitness? Yeah, we're going we're to come back to that. But very unique writing. He was brilliant. In fact, we used to say in Greek class that when you had to translate him, you were separating the men from the boys. Not only that, he was accurate. Well, he was a physician. We know this by his language. His writing contains words and phrases that are characteristic of the medical profession. You notice how anytime a person has a job, their job leaks through in how they talk. Have you ever noticed that? How, how where they work, it, it, it leaks through in how they talk. If you talk with an engineer, like when I talk with an engineer, I will hear an engineer ask me a question like this. Pastor, what percentage of increase has your church experienced this year? percentages and increase and, and all these type of things. And if you talk with a pastor, what does a pastor say? I trust you will have a Merry Christmas. You know, warm and wonderful. If you bump into an undertaker, a mortician, what do they say? 
how are you feeling today? <laughs> I'm feeling quite fine. I'm not going to be using you this weekend, okay? <laughs> Their profession comes out in what they're doing. Some have said that Luke uses more medical language and more medical terms in his writing than Hippocrates, the father of medicine, did in his. You know by his accuracy that he's an excellent doctor. Let's look at his accuracy. When you read through this passage with me, look how accurate it is. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia and Traconius and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, I'm sorry, my pronunciation's off, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Did you see how accurate that was? I mean, he's telling you all the details. He is accurate. He's also a missionary. He traveled with Paul, going around the world. He had the characteristics of an excellent missionary. Now, it's a conflict of professions. Think about it with me. As a, draw, as a doctor, he tries to keep people out of heaven, but as a missionary, he tries to get people into heaven. And he excelled in both. But there was one characteristic. One characteristic that overshadowed them all. And we find it in Colossians 4, 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Can you guess it? Beloved. Now, I have a painting up there. It's from a famous American painter but many of you younger ones aren't going to know who this is. But you older ones, who, who do you think painted that? Norman Rockwell. Yeah, he was known for painting Americana. And here we have the old country doctor listening to the heartbeat of the dolly. There was another one I wanted to bring in, and it was a little girl... And I couldn't find it, but it was a picture of a little girl and a little boy, and they had their puppy. And the doctor was bandaging the puppy's paw. You know, that idea that it just would take time to be with you, that take time to know you, and that they knew everything about you. My doctor, when I was a kid, was that kind of doctor. He was the doctor who delivered my father at the farmhouse. You know, just, just knew you, knew your family. This week I went in to get a procedure done. Well, actually two procedures. I'm not going to tell you uh, some of the procedures because you don't need to know. But one of the procedures, they were going to go down my throat and put a camera. And I was a little nervous. 
One, I didn't want them to hurt my vocal cords. Two, I have a pretty good gag reflex. I wasn't looking forward to this. And so I'm sitting there nervous, dressed in gowns that didn't, you know, there's not much to those gowns. You know what I'm talking about? And, and boy, I mean, in like 10 minutes, I have like 10 different people coming in and out of my room who I have no clue who they are. They all look like they're all in junior high. <laughs> you know? And I hear just, and it, outside my room, there's like another 10, 10 or 12 rooms, and they're all full, and they're all just, I mean, this place is just hopping. And, hey, we're going to take care of you. I said, do you need to get back for finals in your junior high class, you know? <laughs> and and, I, and I, I'm a little nervous, and I need to tell you that. Oh, no problem. We're going to take good care of you, Reverend. Oh, good, good, good. So, you know, can you follow me? Hold this bag of, of stuff we got hooked up to you and hold on to your, to your gown and walk. And so I did. And they put me in the bed. Now, I have to admit, when the anesthesiologist said, we're going to turn on the juice now, that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> and I'm really glad. <laughs> the next thing I remember is, time to wake up. Your wife's here. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's good. That was a good night's sleep. You know, but that's it. But there was no, hey, let's just sit down and talk. Let's just have a moment of time. Let's ask you some questions. Let's get to know you. Uh -uh, I mean, it was in and out, and, and they took great care of me. I'm not complaining. They weren't the beloved physician. This is what Luke was. You say, how do you know, Pastor, that he was a beloved physician? Because there's more of the Christmas story in the book of Luke than anywhere else. And there's insider knowledge that no one else knew. We know stuff about Mary that only her doctor would know. We know about John jumping inside of Elizabeth. We know about Mary breaking out in song. We know about Gabriel visiting her. We know about Joseph's dream and all his conflict. We know about the story of the angels going back and forth in front of the, in front of the, the shepherds. We know about them running and coming to the, to the manger. We know about the, her pondering all those things in her heart. That's from a good doctor asking questions. That's from a beloved physician. That's from a caring physician who knew how to ask questions. Which leads us to our audience. 
The Greek audience is different than the Jewish audience, which is concerned about faith, or the Roman audience, which is concerned about power. The Greeks looked at the world holistically, you know, which Romans and we Americans, for that matter, we like to view things individualistically. We like to look at things in pieces. In fact, if you sent me to a store to shop for decoration, which is extremely dangerous, I would walk through the store and go, I like that, I like that, I like that. I would grab those things, bring them home, and say, okay, this is the new decoration for the church, and I would lay them down, and we'd try to figure out where to put them. Now, I have a friend who if I brought her in to decorate the church, she would close her eyes and she would start making a plan on how everything fit together. And she would walk through a store and I'd go, hey, that looks good. She goes, yes, it's very pretty. Or, not really. And then say, it doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. You see, there's a holistic plan. That's the way the Greeks were. Everything had to fit holistically. Roman Mark, he just wanted the adult life of Christ. Just the peace of life mattered. But to the book of Luke, the whole life of Christ mattered. From before he was born to the resurrection, all his life mattered because to the Greeks, it all had to fit together. So remember when I said that word eyewitness was a medical word? It's the word we get autopsy from. Autopsy. Have you ever been to an autopsy? When I was in Los Angeles, one of my field trips was to the L.A. County morgue. And I won't go into it. But at the morgue, they autopsy things. They examine things. They take things apart. And that's what Luke is going to do. He's saying, I'm going to take Jesus Christ. I'm going to scientifically examine him to see what kind of person he is. I'm going to test him. I'm going to prove to this Greek audience that he is the perfect man. I want them to see him as he really is. You see, a minister sees a man at his best. A lawyer sees a man at his worst. And a physician sees a man as he is. So Luke uses Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So when we look at this passage, we find that Jesus, who's probably a teenager, as a teenager, is the perfect man. And Luke says, let's take this teen, let's put him under the microscope, and you're going to find exactly what you're looking for. So mentally... The Greeks sought to develop the perfect thinker. They produced Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, no form of 
philosophy was off limits to them. Aristotle became the father of psychology, or as some have called it, the study of the id by the odd. Folks, the jokes don't get any better. I'm sorry. The Greeks stress observations. So Luke responds by recording all of Jesus' parables because in his parables, we find the wisdom of Jesus. And there's more parables in Luke than any other gospel. He drills down on them to capture the attention of the Greek audience. He says, you want wisdom? Here it is. Physical. The Greeks want the perfect man. We see it in their statues. They emphasize the athlete. We talk to Luke and he reveals the virgin birth, the miraculous birth in Luke chapter 1. And then we see Jesus clearing out the temple in Luke 19. He shows the man in action. Socially, it was important to the Greeks that they be filled with graciousness and goodness. And Luke says, this is a man who was in favor with men. So he responds with the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10. He talks about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. And then he tells the story of the thief on the cross that in the midst of Jesus dying on the cross, he turns and takes care of the needs of a man on the cross dying next to him. Talk about goodness. And then spiritually. The Greeks had Mount Olympus. They had their own gods. Apollo, Zeus, Aphrodite, Athena. In fact, in Athens, there was a place. It was two miles long, 200 yards wide, and it was filled with every altar, every statue of every god. In fact, there were more gods represented there than there were people in Athens. This is where Paul was when he walked and he noticed, and we read in Acts 17, men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. You see, even with all their gods, they realized they were incomplete, that they were lacking. This search for human perfection had resulted in spiritual depletion. They were spiritually empty. The Greek says, I'm looking for the perfection of a man or woman mentally physically socially and spiritually and as i've searched i can only come up with an altar to an unknown god so dr luke shows up and says i performed an autopsy i found who you are searching for i found the one who can help you and here's my announcement in Luke chapter 2, in the midst of the Christmas story, he writes, For unto you was born this day in the city of David the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now you may be surprised with the simplicity of the announcement. 
to the sophisticated Greek mind. But these sophisticated Greeks needed a simple truth. It was packaged in sophisticated language, but the truth was simple. They needed a savior. A few weeks ago, I was sitting, it was the Wednesday night before Thanksgiving, I was sitting in a church. Some of you were sitting with me. There was handbell choir, there was a brass ensemble, there was a pipe organ, there was a piano, there was a, a choir of nearly 100 or more singers. And we were singing about Thanksgiving. And it was beautiful. It was amazing. And the different choirs would present different choir numbers, and some of them were very ornate. Some of them were complex. But the one number that struck the heart of everyone there, the one that reached their souls, was the one with the simplest message. It was the one that sang, He's never failed me, and he won't fail me, because he's my Savior. Now, I have to admit, I'm a little biased, because I really like the pianist and the choir director and the soloist, because I really like the church they came from. I'm not going to use its name, but I'll tell you the initials, B-E-F-C. But in the midst of sophistication, in the midst of knowledge and technical insight, there's a longing in our souls for that which is true and real and foundational in our worship. Luke knew his audience. He knew they had all the sophistication it could put up with. And so when he presented the perfect man, he presented Jesus Christ simply as Savior. The language was sophisticated, but the message was simple. He did not present Jesus as the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the everlasting father, the promise of the line of David. No, just Savior. But it is this blend of sophistication and simplicity that makes Dr. Luke's message strike at the heart of the Greek reader. At the end of the 19th century, there was an agnostic who set out to disprove the historical accuracy of the book of Luke. Being a scholar, being an archaeologist, he traveled to the biblical lands and he studied. And after careful research, 
after studying every shred of the evidence, after every methodology of sophistication he could apply, he concluded that Luke's writings were without error. His methodology satisfied the agnostic's mind, and more important, the truth of God's word melted his heart, and Sir William Ramsey became a believer and a defender of the Christian faith. He became one of the finest scholars that ever lived, and due to the sophistication and simplicity of Luke's writings and message, he found Jesus Christ. And now he is in glory with his Lord. Luke appealed to the intellectual. Many years ago, a heart surgeon scheduled a meeting with a mentor of mine to talk about whether or not the Bible and Christianity is true. My friend gave him an account of why you could trust the Bible. He took the surgeon through documented evidence, philosophy, history, archaeology, anthropology. By the end of their conversation, the surgeon thanked my friend for the time they spent together, but he left as he came, an unbeliever, a man who would not accept the things of Jesus. So my friend just kept praying for him. Six months later, my friend was told that the man had come to faith in Christ. And my friend was concerned, how? How? Well, one day, an old, uneducated, unsophisticated Christian patient had come to the surgeon. The surgeon had to tell him that he was going to die. The Christian looked at the surgeon and started to ask the surgeon questions, not about himself, but about the surgeon. How are you really doing, he asked. The surgeon opened up. At the end of their chat, the Christian looked at the surgeon and said, you know, Jesus could help you. He could help you in your marriage. He could help you in your relationship with your son. He may or may not. But more importantly than that, you need to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior. At that moment, the doctor was broken. At that moment, the doctor bowed with his patient, his patient who was going to die, and prayed and asked Jesus Christ into his life as his Savior. For unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Human pursuit of perfection has been replaced by divine salvation. Will you 
embrace the Savior. Father, that is the question. Will you melt our heart so that we might embrace the Savior? Would you take away our sophistication so that we may hear the simple message? We ask this in Jesus' name.